I like that prayer time. Sometimes you just get like three or four days in a row that are like super busy. And you realize, even though you're the pastor of the church, you haven't actually sat down and prayed for a long time for a while. <laughs> that was like really refreshing for me to just like catch up on my prayer while Gord was praying. I hope you're doing that too. It was a crazy few days. This morning, we're continuing in our series on the imperfect disciple. And uh, the chapter that you are reading or are going to read is uh, really dealing with law and grace. And I've preached on law and grace probably four or five times uh, in my career as a pastor, like specifically this topic. And every time I sit down to write this particular sermon, I end up with about 17 pages of notes and too many places to start. And uh, as I said in chapter 7 of the book, The Imperfect Disciple, Mr. Wilson is also wrestling with this same topic of law and grace. What place does the law have in the Christian life? Not just the Mosaic law, that is the law written by Moses in the Old Testament, not the law of art formed by small shards of pottery, but the Mosaic law written by Moses, not just that law, but the law of the whole Bible, the old and the new, all the commands that amount to, when we read them, just sound like, be really, really good people. That's what the Bible tells us. And as you read the chapter this week, you're going to find, as usual, some very practical direction on how to live as disciples by grace. And and all the things that Mr. Wilson says is great stuff, and I'll leave you to him for that. But whenever this topic comes up in understanding the Bible, in understanding God, in understanding the Christian life that we are called to live, the role of the law in the presence of grace always seems fraught with confusion for disciples. Now, if you go back to just two weeks ago, we rejoiced together as disciples, as people of God, in Psalm 119, which is a literal hymn to the goodness of God's law, his commands, his precepts, his instructions, his word. And we know and we feel and we should know that, as the psalm writer does, that the word or the law of God is good for everything. So that seems normal to us. But then even as we're reading God's law or God's word, it seems to say, as we read along, especially as we get to the nice parts near the end in the New Testament, it sounds like even the law of God says to us, hey, everybody, we changed our minds. Now it's not law anymore. It's grace. And here the confusion sets in. And that comes to us as sort of a relief, if we're honest. Because if we're still being honest, the law, the imperatives, the commands, and the demands of Scripture at times seem to sit like an 800-pound gorilla in the middle of our Christian life. It's like it's sitting there in our living room, and we're nervous to approach it. What do we do with the law? We want to live this carefree Christian life by grace, but the law is sitting there eating all of our bananas. And we don't really know what to do with it. It certainly makes it hard just to have fun and do as we please. But this confusion that we have among Christians between law and grace is carried on down through 2,000 years of church history, so don't feel alone in it. 
it is understandable for us to be confused because the Bible will give us statements like this. You are no longer under law, but under grace. Okay, seems straightforward. But then in another place say, do we then overthrow the law by faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Okay, now come on, that seems deliberately confusing, doesn't it? That's the same author in the same book who says that. That's Paul in Romans. Later on, Paul says things like, you have died to the law in order that we may bear fruit for God. Okay, clear enough. The law must be a bad thing then if we're meant to be dead to it. I get where you're going now, Paul. I'm on track. But then Paul says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That's in the same chapter. (laughs) Okay, so law and grace. It's a little confusing. So what am I supposed to think about the law as a disciple? Am I finished with it, or is it a good and precious thing? Am I supposed to submit to it, or am I supposed to reject it because I'm dead to it? Well, the biblical answer is yes. And no. And by God's grace... And the help of the Spirit, we're going to unpack a little bit this mystery of law and grace so we can figure out as disciples what is Paul talking about. Father God, we're going to open up your word. Um, We need your Holy Spirit to teach us things that are of the Spirit. So that's what we ask for now. We ask for your Holy Spirit to open our hearts, open our minds, uh, to uh, definitely open my vocal cords and my thoughts so that I speak only your thoughts. And if I speak anything amiss, that your Holy Spirit will correct it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a lot of approaches that I could take, but let's just go back to those first two sentences of Paul and ask ourselves the most basic question we could and should ask of any Bible text. This is what I did after like three and a half days and 17 pages of notes. I just said, okay, Paul, just go back to read the two sentences and ask the question we must always ask every time we're reading the Bible. What is the author trying to say to the people he's talking to? Not what do I want him to say, not what does this mean in our present context, not how do I apply this to my life. The first question we ask is what is Paul trying to say to the people he's writing to, which includes us. So what then does Paul mean when he says in Romans 6.14, you are no longer under law but under grace? And then secondly, what does Paul mean when he says in Romans 3.31, Do we then overthrow the law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We have to figure out what does Paul mean when he says this. That's basic Bible interpretation. So let's consider the first one. You are no longer under law but under grace. The full verse of 614 is this. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are no longer under law but under grace. And if you were to look around that verse and see the full context of the passage, it's Paul talking about how we as Christians are set free 
In other words, no longer under dominion, no longer slaves, we're set free from sin. Paul's talking about the law and grace in relation specifically to our salvation, or what we call our justification, our being saved. And what this says then is that according to our salvation before God, our justification, we are not under law but under grace. We're not saved from sin and justified before God by the law. We know we are saved and justified before God by grace. And we can see this idea of Paul's confirmed in a completely different teaching in Ephesians chapter 2, where the same writer, Paul, says it this way. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So he says the same thing in reverse. In Romans, he said, you're not under the law, but under grace. Here in Ephesians, he says, by grace you are saved through faith, not as a result of works, or you could say works of the law there, or you could even say just good works or good deeds. You're not saved that way. You're saved by grace. So as disciples of Jesus, saved by grace, we understand this about the law first and foremost. It is not by the law that we are saved, but by grace. And I think most of us know that, and I've been preaching on that the whole eight years that I've been here, so I don't need to belabor it. I think as Christians and disciples, we know at least that, even if we don't grasp the significance of it entirely. But if we look just a page or so further back in this book of Romans, we'll see that Paul says something much stronger than simply we're not saved by the law. And this is where things start to get really confusing. Because what Paul wants to say, even more than we're not saved, is that the law was never meant to be our Savior. In fact, the law only makes our predicament worse. And it was intended that way. Romans 5.20, Paul says, Now the law came in. The law came in. Why? Is what you're hanging on right now? Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, this is where our natural minds are already getting confused. I mean, doesn't everyone know that following God is all about following his rules? That's how you get accepted by God. I mean, maybe it's grace that saves us now, but originally, at least, in the Old Testament, the law was meant to save people, right? The law must have come to increase obedience. No. Keep in mind, Paul's writing to a church in Rome that's composed of both Jews and Gentiles, and this is really provocative writing. His Jewish readers at this point are probably throwing the pages of his letter around the room and stomping their feet and pulling their beards. Because Paul is saying that the law came in to increase trespass so that sin would be even more readily visible. And even the Gentiles are scratching their head thinking, this is not how religion works. I mean, even us former pagans know that gods give us rules so that we can become better and work hard at their rules and get accepted into heaven. That's how religion works. Even we know this. 
If you ask 100 people on the street today, they will tell you the same thing. To be a good religious person and qualify for heaven, you must follow the rules. That's how you're justified. That's what religion is all about. That's why the Bible is full of rules, and that's why I don't like it. And Paul says, no. Not exactly. It's not that simple. Not with regards to salvation, certainly. That isn't what the law came in for. Instead of saying here that the law came in to make Israel a special nation and make sure that they got to rest with their forefathers and with God after their death, as his Jewish readers would have wanted him to say, Paul says instead that the law came in to increase the trespass, or your version might say the transgression or even the sin. The law is not our savior. The law cannot justify us before God. Learning the law apart from grace, in fact, only worsens our predicament because it amplifies and increases our sinfulness and our wrong standing with God. Is this true? Paul says it actually again later in his letter to Galatians. Galatians 2.16, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He literally repeats himself twice in the same sentence, just so you don't miss it. And so back in Romans, he already laid it out this way in Romans 3.28. He said, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So a disciple then, in dealing with the law in our life, does not look at the law or to their good works as something that will save them, but trust only in the faith given to them in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because the law will only show us that we are sinners, that we fall short of it. And as a disciple then, a good way to test in our life if we are really trusting in Jesus and not trusting in our work or in the law is determine how you would react to any accusation of Satan, of our enemy. When we are tempted to despair, when we are lying awake at 3 o'clock in the morning, going over and over in our mind the remembrance of our guilt, do we respond by pointing out our obedience and our good deeds and our righteous acts? The accusation comes up in your mind while you're lying there. How could you think those thoughts? How could you act so shamefully? What a dark and nasty deed you did in secret today. And the enemy is whispering in our ear and in our minds. I thought you were a Christian. How can God accept a creature like you? At that moment as a disciple, is your defense, well, I have more good thoughts than bad thoughts. I do good deeds as well as dark deeds. I do honorable things as well as shameful things. In fact, I do more honorable things than I do shameful things. On the balance, I'm a pretty good person. I hope that's not your answer. The only safe and true answer for a disciple in understanding the law is to point away from ourselves and point to Christ. He's become a perfect sacrifice. He's become a curse for us. We have been saved not by obedience, not by the weight of our good deeds versus our shameful deeds, but by the blood of Christ and by the blood of Christ alone.
And so as disciples, we never point at ourselves, but we point towards Christ. We have to move on. Remember, we're unpacking what Paul means when he said, Romans 6, 14b, you are no longer under law, but under grace. So first of all, it means that we are not saved or justified under the law. But secondly, Paul also means that under the law, we are not sanctified. We are neither under the law for our salvation, nor are we under the law for our sanctification. And this is where Christians get confused a lot, too, because a lot of times we think, okay, I get it, I'm saved by grace, but I still have to work to stay saved, right? Like, i got to keep working in order to stay at the table. Like, God invited me to this party that I don't deserve to be at, but i got to behave myself while I'm there, or he might kick me out. So we must use the law for our sanctification, right? Well, if we move a few pages forward in Romans, we find Paul saying things like this. In Romans 8, 2 to 4, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ, that's our salvation, from the law of sin and death, terrible laws, condemning us. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That's our works of sin in our actual bodies. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, that's our life, it's our actions, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, there's a lot going on in that text, but I hope you catch the main drift of it. Paul is saying here that our sanctification, that is our ability to walk according to righteousness and to fulfill the righteousness of the law, is not actually accomplished by the law. In fact, verse 3 explicitly stated, says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Law can't do it. Law can't make us better people. Law can't help us and give us power to be good. It could not make Israel obey. The law cannot make us obey. It can't make us righteous. It can't cause us to walk according to the Spirit. Not because it's a failure, Paul is careful to note, but because we are failures. And the law doesn't sanctify us. See, this is just the opposite of what Paul's Jewish readers want to hear. And it's the opposite of what most people expect to hear. We expect Paul to say, obey the law of God, and God will save you. And additionally, read the Bible, and it will make you righteous. But that's not exactly what he's saying. The law and our attempts to do really, really good works, even by the law, doesn't save us and it doesn't sanctify us. We find that we still end up walking according to our flesh unless we have, as Paul says here, the Spirit. Because the law by itself is powerless to sanctify us. Back to good old Galatians to help us out again. There, now, Paul says it this way in Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing 
and this is really important, keep you from doing the things you want to do. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about disciples. He's talking about people like himself in Romans 7 whose mind is like, I want to obey God, but this flesh is stopping me from even doing what I want to do. But he says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Paul sneaks that law back in there again. He's talking about sanctification. How do we walk rightly? How do we live properly before God? He says, how do we resist the flesh, which is actually keeping us from doing what we want to do? He says, by the Spirit, not by the law. We are not under the law. Same phrase. You're not under the law for your sanctification. Now, those are two very big ideas about what the law is not for in the life of a disciple. And that's why Paul says that we are no longer under the law, but we are now under grace, praise God. We're not under the law for our salvation. We're not even under the law for our sanctification. It's all by grace and the Spirit. But what about that other statement of Paul's? Right? The confusing one that really turns everything upside down again. Just when we think we've got the law left far behind, it's like, I'm tracking with you, Paul. Apostle Paul, I'm tracking with you, Paul, Pastor Paul. Tracking with both the Pauls. We've left the law behind. I get it. You've made it so clear. And then Paul says, do we then overthrow the law by faith or by our grace, you could say? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Okay, come on now. How do we then as disciples die to the law? not live by the law, you know, or put it in the past, but then also now Paul says, uphold the law. Bible says it, I believe it, so let's figure it out. Well, there's several ways, but I'm just going to talk about two and a half of them for the sake of time and just recognizing my own and our mental capacity. First, the first lesson, actually, that we're learning here right now is that law and grace is not simplistic, simple, but it's not simplistic. You have to lean into the Word of God to understand what he's saying to us and teaching us. But, but let's look at this. There's several ways in which disciples are meant to uphold the law. First, I'll give you the half point, and I won't elaborate on this much at all. In his immediate context, because remember, when we read the Bible, we look at what is Paul saying, what does he intend to say by his words to the people he's writing to. And in his immediate context, Paul says we uphold the law. He's talking about our dependence on faith. In other words, is faith contrary to the law of Moses, or has faith always been a part of the original intent of of the law of Moses? Well, since we've already seen that the law came to increase our sin, not to save us, then it stands to reason that from the very beginning, God has always saved by faith and has never saved by the law. And that, we find, is exactly what Paul is saying here. Faith, or we could substitute grace, was never contrary to the law because faith was always how God has saved alongside the law. Two sentences later, Paul says in Romans 4, 3, context here, this is what he's talking about to the people he's writing to. He says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Always by faith. 
Always by grace. Abraham didn't have a law to follow, and he was counted righteous. It's not contrary to the law to say we're saved by faith, because God is always saved by faith. This is how it's always been. That's the first thing that Paul is saying in terms of why the law is upheld even by grace. Secondly, though, like I said, I'm not elaborating on that one. So much there we talk about, but anyway. Secondly, disciples uphold the law when we use it pedagogically. When we use the law as our tutor that points us towards Christ, and it's Galatians to the rescue again. Galatians 3, 24 and 25. He says, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, no longer under the law. I read the NASB version there because some other translations will say guardian instead of tutor, which isn't exactly wrong, as you'll see in a minute, but it isn't exactly right either. The Greek word here is literally pedagogy, and it's where we get our word pedagogy, and it's meaning a a method or a practice of teaching. A, A teacher is a pedagogue. Now, the reason other translations say guardian, though, is because the actual Greek word pedagogue literally means the servant person who walked the children to school. You can hear it in the word, right? Peda. You probably, some of you maybe have a pedometer that you use to track your 10,000 steps that you take every day, right? Right? You're taking your 10,000 steps. Peda, pedometer. Pedagogue was the servant who took the children and guarded them and made sure they ended up at school and not playing in giant heaps of dirt somewhere beside the side of the road, which is where we'd find Isaac if we left him to walk to school on his own. (laughs) The pedagogue guarded the child and led them to school so that they would learn. Paul picks up on that. He says, this is what the law does. We uphold the law when we use it for its intended purpose, one of which is is to lead us to Christ. It's to take us by the hand and say, I'm going to make sure you get there. Right? He says, this is what the law does. We talked about what the law doesn't do, but Paul here says, this is how it's upheld. This is how the law succeeds. This is the law working as intended to lead us to Christ, to lead us to faith. Once faith comes, we don't need it to continue to lead us there, you know, in the initial sense anymore. But in reality, the law is always doing this. People are sitting down today and opening up the Bible and reading the law and saying, this is strange stuff. What is this God who reveals himself to me? How is he saying these things that are so different from the world that resound in my heart? And the law leads them to Christ. And in fact, even as disciples, when when we stray, we can allow the law, the Word of God, to lead us back to Christ. And the law does this in so many exciting ways that we don't have time to get into, but but literally the law, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, lead us and point us to Christ. You can go read the whole book of Hebrews. The whole book of Hebrews is basically a description of how the law points at Christ. It's the whole book of the Bible that just talks about this. So first, the law is upheld by faith and grace because it was never different than that. God always saved by faith. Secondly, the law is upheld when we use it for its intended purpose, which is to lead us to Christ. 
and allow it to still function that way. As disciples, we should use the law to lead others to Christ, to point the way and keep pointing ourselves at Christ. And then finally, as disciples, remember, we're trying to unpack what does Paul mean when he says that the law, that, that on the contrary, we uphold the law. Finally, as disciples, we uphold the law in love. Paul says in Romans 13, 8 to 10, he says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So as Paul approaches the end of Romans, which if you dig into Romans, you'll realize he's talking about the law a lot. In fact, the whole New Testament talks about the law a lot. That's why we're so confused. Why are they talking about the law so much? But as Paul gets to the end of Romans, he, he very boldly summarizes the entire law into one concept. Love. Love. That's how disciples uphold the law. By love. Now... I have ten more sermons on what biblical love is. So hold on. No, just kidding you. But I'll tell you this about love, the love that is biblical, the love that Paul's talking about, is it is the law that defines for us what love is. It is not we who take our ideas about love and try to tell the Bible what love is. Okay, so I'll just make that point. If the law is love and we uphold the law by love, then it is the law that tells us what love is. We don't import our ideas of love into the Bible and say, well, this is how I love, and so the Bible's wrong. But for today, let's just leave it at that. If we are faithful as disciples to properly understand biblical love, not worldly love, then as disciples, we uphold the law whenever we act in love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. If you are acting in love, you are accomplishing the righteousness of the law. And James agrees with Paul in this, not surprisingly, as they have the same spirit inspiring them. He says in James 2.8, he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. What an encouragement from the brother of Jesus to all of us poor, imperfect disciples. He says, if you just love each other, you're doing well. You're doing good. And, of course, they both got it from Jesus. Matthew 22. He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God. Love each other. Now, what that means practically for us as disciples is, of course, again, that our works and our deeds and our efforts are worthless apart from the righteousness that comes from working in love. 
And that's exactly the kind of thing that Paul is teaching if you go to some place like 1 Corinthians 13. Long before 1 Corinthians 13 was used as a nice thing to read at weddings, it was instruction to disciples and should still be. 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul says, I can give away all my money. I can risk my body to the point of death for others. I can study all the religious mysteries. I can perform miracles. I can preach and teach like an angel. I can do works with the most righteous of the self-righteous. But if I do those works without love, I'm nothing. It fulfills nothing in the law. It accomplishes nothing for my salvation or my sanctification in the eyes of God. Without love, all of those works are meaningless. It isn't real righteousness. It isn't real faith. It isn't going to save me. doesn't matter how much work I do without love. It's not under the law. It's not going to justify me. It's not going to qualify me. It's just noise. The church has talked for 2,000 years about law and grace. I've given you 30 minutes. I don't pretend to say I've unpacked everything there is to understand about law and grace, but I hope you've seen here the consistency of Scripture, the consistency of law and grace, the consistency of our God who has revealed himself in his law as a gracious and merciful God, how the law points us to Christ, and how we as disciples shouldn't feel like the law is an 800-pound gorilla that sits in the middle of our living room or in the middle of our Christian life and makes us uncomfortable. Like, what do I do with this thing? The law, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, is beautiful. And the law is not inconsistent with the grace that saves us. Perhaps one of the best ways of remembering how the law is meant to operate in the Christian life, I'll leave you with this, is to remember how the law was originally given by God. And I hope most of you, if not all of you, know this. When did God's people receive the law? In fact, to be clear, when did God's people receive any collective written information about God at all? Right? Like beginning with the Ten Commandments. When did the people of God receive the Ten Commandments and all the law that came after them in the final chapters of Exodus? That's a bit of a hint. And then Leviticus and Deuteronomy. All these laws that were given to the people of God, they were given through Moses. When were they given? Anybody? When they were in the desert. When we were in the desert, which was after what? The Exodus. After the Exodus, after they rescued. God rescued them out of Egypt. Don't miss that. The people of God got the law after God rescued them. See, God didn't tell Moses to go into Egypt where his people were enslaved and have Moses give them all the law and then tell them, if you people in slavery could obey my law well enough, I will rescue you. No. God rescued his people. And after he rescued them out of slavery, he said, here, you should get to know me. This is my law. 
This is me. This is my goodness. This is what I want for you. This is how you live with me. This is how you live together. I've rescued you. Now here is me. Here's my law. Here's my mercy. The law in many forms and in many ways says this. It's how the Ten Commandments start. I am your God who rescued you. You are going to be my people. Now let me tell you all about myself. That's how God speaks to his people. It's how God speaks to us by his good and perfect and clean and sweet and wise and wonderful law like we looked at a couple of weeks ago. The law was never meant to be our savior. The law points us and leads us to the savior, Jesus Christ. So if we're going to be thoughtful, diligent, obedient disciples, we've got to lean into understanding the law of God and how it operates. Jesus has saved us from the law and through the law. And so if we don't understand how the law works, then we really don't understand exactly what Jesus has done. So don't run away from the law like it's that gorilla in your living room. Lean into what the Word teaches us about the law of God. It will only encourage you the closer you press in and the more you learn. It will only show you more and more of the goodness and grace and mercy of God and the salvation that comes through Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, law and grace, wow. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for its consistency Thank you for your Holy Spirit and for Jesus Christ who set us free from the law so that we could obey the law. He set us free from condemnation of the law so that we could rejoice in your glorious law. Oh, what an incredible mystery. What a tension. What a paradox. That's all resolved on the cross. You are the God of love who also must be just. And your justice and your love and mercy perfectly is pictured on the cross of Jesus Christ. You are a God who is gracious and who loves us, and your law displays your grace, even as we are set free from the condemnation it brings. Father, you are so good. And thank you for your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen.